It has been a while since I have preached from the pulpit of the Bible Church of Little Rock. I have exhausted all guest speakers. And you are now stuck with me, and I am very excited and yet saddened because we come to the very last message in 1 Peter. I have lived with this book for many days, excited because it has taught me much saddened because it must now come to an end. As we come to the close of our book study of 1 Peter, we find ourselves in chapter 5, verses 6 to 14, transfixed within the metaphor of the scene of a spiritual battlefield. Peter's use of words which are rich in the imagery of warfare is very apparent. And so it doesn't take much effort at all to place ourselves within the context of believers battling the prince of the power of the air, which, with, excuse me, the weaponry which God has given us. We are called upon to wage war with the enemy of our souls. He whom we cannot see is fighting against us with the ferociousness that is very intense. And we must take every precaution not to fall prey to his schemes. And Peter closes his epistle with a serious but encouraging word of hope to all those who name the name of Jesus Christ, the one who would steal, kill, and destroy can be defeated, and we can be victorious through our Savior, King Jesus. Let's read of this battlefield imagery in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 to 14. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, 
I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you, all who are in Christ. Thomas Brooks, in his excellent book, which I have so profited from greatly over the years, Puritan teacher of yesteryear, his book entitled Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, writes a virtual introduction to my sermon when he pins these words. Beloved in our dearest Lord, Christ, the Scripture, your own hearts, and Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. Did you hear what he said? Christ... The Scripture, your own hearts, and Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. If any cast off the study of these, they cannot be safe here nor happy hereafter. It is my work as a Christian but much more as I am a watchman to do my best to discover the fullness of Christ, the emptiness of the creature, and the snares of the great deceiver. Beloved, I can't think of a better introduction as we come to the close of our study of First Peter than what Thomas Brooks has just said. The study of Christ through the Scripture, to look at ourselves and our own natures and to study about Satan and his schemes. Really, if you break down the Christian life, that's what it is. To study about Christ, about the Scripture, about your own hearts, and about Satan and his schemes. That's really it. That there really isn't anything else in life. And that's in essence what Peter is telling us as he wraps everything up in First Peter. It's as though Peter is saying, I'm signing off. I'm telling you goodbye. I'm saying... To you suffering, persecuted, slandered Christians, this is it. These are are my final exhortations. And I want you to know that under the inspiration of Holy Scripture, you better know Christ. You better know your own hearts. And you better know Satan's schemes. And that's exactly what Thomas Brooks has also said.
Now, as we come to this close, Peter says in his final exhortations, and what I see here in these verses, from verses 6 to 14, seven exhortations. And that's our outline. Seven final exhortations which Peter gives to his beloved flock, and I don't think I can improve on that at all. So his seven final exhortations are my seven final exhortations. Now, not final in the sense that this is the last sermon I'm ever going to preach. I sure hope not. But at least in terms of First Peter. Seven final exhortations. In the midst of seeing the last shot that I have with you, maybe ever, in terms of First Peter, there are seven things that Peter wants to tell them that they ought to do. And here they are. Humility, including some anxiety casting in the midst of that humility. Humility, sobriety, watchfulness, resistance to the devil's schemes, and that by taking some encouragement from seeing fellow believers suffer around the world. And I'll, of course, repeat these so you can write them down. Standing firm in the grace of God, greeting one another with kisses of love and prayers for peace in Christ. That's seven. Humility, sobriety, watchfulness, resistance to the devil's schemes, standing firm in the grace of God, greeting one another with kisses of love and prayers for peace in Christ. That's what he says. Seven of those exhortations, many of them commands, and he says, as he wraps it all up, that's what I want you to do. That's how I want you to apply all of the things that I've said to you. Now, I'm not going to necessarily go sequentially through all of verses 6 to 14. I'm going to jump around a little bit to show you each of those seven. But I also want you to see that in the backdrop of verses 6 to 14, that there are three players in this deal. There are the believers, of course, and it's, of course, believers, unbelievers, believers against Satan, and believers in their relationship with God. But it's believers, of course, to be sure, Believers interacting with believers, believers against Satan, believers in their relationship with God. That's for sure. And that's who the exhortations are primarily uh, the commands toward. That's for sure. But lurking behind the scenes is another being, and that's Satan. And then providentially controlling it all is a third being, and that's God. And it's fascinating to study the Scripture because essentially... Behind these seven exhortations are these uh, three entities, believers, Satan, and God. And that's essentially what you have always in the Christian life. You have believers who are always working, laboring on the earth. And you have Satan and God in a cosmic battle 
And you have Satan lurking behind the scenes, always attempting to thwart the believers as they're interacting with other believers, as they're interacting in the world. And you have Satan trying to thwart the plan of God. And you have believers trying to do the will of God. And you have God always providentially protecting believers. And God always controlling what Satan is doing And you have this galactic interplay always going on with believers not only always knowing what God and Satan are all about in this cosmos. It's very fascinating what's happening. So in the midst of of Peter exhorting believers with these seven exhortations, you've got Satan trying to do his thing, and you've got God controlling all things by his work and will, and you've got the seven exhortations that God is commanding believers to obey, and you've got all of that happening in verses 6 to 14. Isn't that amazing? And I bet you just thought that you were going to read verses 6 to 14 and then just close your Bible. There's a lot going on in verses 6 to 14. And, and I suppose that I read verses 6 to 14 a hundred times or more, not just this week, but I just popped my little CD of my New American Standard into my CD player in the car, and I probably listened to it 200 times. Because I want to hear the Word of God in my earlobe over and over and over and over again because there may be something that I'm missing. There may be something that I can hear that will be the key that unlocks the understanding of the Word of God in my mind that may be the key to understanding This section of 1 Peter that may actually be the unlocking of the understanding of something here that may be the key that unlocks some issue of obedience in my own life, you see? And it may be something that unlocks a truth to me that sets me free on some besetting sin in my own life, right? And before us are these seven exhortations. Let's talk about the first one. And boy, is it hitting us right out of the chute. Humility. Humility. What does he say there? Verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Now remember, he's just ended the previous section with a call for the elders and the younger men of the churches, as well as to everyone in the churches, to be humble toward one another. And he says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. So he's been talking a lot about humility. And isn't this interesting, that right in the midst of a section on suffering, because we've just come out of that, all the way from chapter 3, verse 13, to chapter 4, verse 19, with only chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, as an interlude, he's been talking a lot about suffering. And so right in the midst of talking about suffering, you would assume he wouldn't have to say a whole lot about humility, but he does. You would assume that suffering would engender Humility very easily. But what does suffering sometimes do with people? It actually sometimes causes people to clench their fist 
and say to God, What are you doing? What are you doing? I don't like what you're doing. I question what you're doing. I question your will in my life. I don't think what you're doing is right. I don't think your plan is right. I know what should happen in my life and this isn't it. And so he says in chapter 5, to those who are the leaders and to those who are the young men, you see it there in verse 5, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders because, of course, there may be a tendency in young men who are young and strong and vibrant and dynamic not to be subject to their elders, to clothe themselves with humility toward one another. And by, that, by the way, that word clothe, that's that word to bind or to tie. And it's the very word, that Greek word, that means a servant's tie or bind that would literally mean a servant would use a, a, a tie or a garment that they would uh, take with their, with their long robes or their dresses. You remember back at that time, they would have a longer robe. They wouldn't have pants like we would have. And they would literally, they would gird themselves up. They would take their loins. They would lift up their robe and they would tie it off so that they could be a little bit more flexible, so that they could bend down and they could wash the feet of another person. That's what that word clothe yourselves means. And so they would take their, their bind or their tie and they would lift up so that they could be a little bit more flexibly able to bend down in order to serve another person. And so he says, you, you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves, and he adds this, under the mighty hand of God. And they would know exactly where that was coming from because that is the rich imagery that term mighty hand of God of the Old Testament when the mighty hand of God was delivering the Israelites from bondage in Egypt that phrase is used in Exodus several times it's used in Deuteronomy a couple of times it's even used by the way in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 20, uh, 34, I will bring you out from the people, the peoples, and gather you from the lands where you were scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. They would know that phrase. Mighty hand. It speaks of God's power. It speaks of God's exalted position. It speaks of who God is and therefore by contrast who we are. Humble yourselves knowing who you are and contrast that with who God is. He is a mighty God that He may, what? Exalt you. You see, if you really understood who you are, then you would understand who God is. And if you really understood who God is, then you would rightly understand your place, your position. In fact, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel and you would understand even from a prayer of Hannah exactly what she understood. 1 Samuel chapter 2. And I take us to some of these passages because maybe we need a, a refresher 
on this idea of humility and exaltation. Maybe we need a refresher course on pride, humility, and exaltation. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 7. Remember Hannah's song of thanksgiving? First Samuel 2, 7. The Lord makes poor and rich. The next part of the verse, He brings low, He also exalts. That's a ringing theme, folks, throughout the Old Testament. Ringing theme. It goes all the way through even to the New Testament. God is the one who brings low, and God is the one who exalts. The ministry of Jesus, same idea. God is the one who humbles. God is the one who exalts. Matthew chapter 23. This is what... God says, this is the pattern, Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Psalm 75. God rises up someone, he puts down another. It's God's sovereign will. Someone gets puffed up. He puts somebody down. That's God's plan. That's what He does. Luke 1.52. This is, this is the, the sovereign will of God. Luke 1.52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. Luke 14.11. Luke 14.11. This, this is the pattern this is what God does, Luke 14, 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is, this is what God says. This is the ministry of Jesus Christ, Luke 18, 14. I tell you, this man, this man, the one uh, who was beating on his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner... I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee who was exalting himself. Why? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. See a pattern here? That's what God does. Just borrowing that imagery. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. And some of you might be responding, as I'm sure so many did in Peter's day, but, but that's so hard when you're hurting. It's so difficult to do. It's so difficult not to focus when you're suffering, when you're being persecuted, when you're being slandered. And I suppose so. It's so hard for all of us to do that. It's so hard when someone's slandering you, when someone's saying all kinds of manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. And I'm sure Peter, as a beloved pastor, and in John 21, when Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep, I'm sure that Peter recognized that, and I suppose that's why he says here in 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Sure, it's hard. And that's why when you get in that position, when that focus is difficult, when it's hard, 
He says in verse 7, when it's so very difficult, when you're at your hardest, verse 7, casting all your anxiety on Him for He cares for you. Doesn't 1 Corinthians 10.13 say that God will not allow you to be tempted, tested beyond what you're able? Well, here it is. God knows. He knows your frame. He knows you can't take something beyond your capacity and so cast your burden upon Him. In other words, you don't need to carry this entire burden yourself. Cast the burden of suffering and worry upon the mighty hand of God and He will care for you. Don't you think that if the mighty God of the universe who can both humble and exalt Don't you think He can be trusted? Don't you think He will care for you? Don't you think if the God of the universe who can providentially care for someone who is being slandered, who is being persecuted, maybe even brought to the point of death, don't you think if He can care for the person who is undergoing the greater persecution, don't you think He can care for somebody who is going through the lesser pain? Of course He can. Of course He can. You remember Jesus in Matthew 5? Don't worry about what you'll be clothed with. Don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about those things. Doesn't God take care of the sparrow? Doesn't He know how many hairs are on a person's head? Don't, don't, don't be concerned about those things. Cast your burden upon the Lord. He cares for you. But you know what? You have to be humble in order to do that. You see how the the humility and the casting of your burden go together? You have to be humble and you have to be dependent. You, you You have to be humbly dependent upon the Lord. That's why these two verses are together. You have to say to the Lord, I need you. I need you. I think that's why these two are not two separate commands. That's why I didn't put them as such. It's humility with anxious casting. That's why they're not two separate commands in this text. It's it's being a humble person and you are humble by casting your anxiety upon the Lord. That's one command. And you are humble before God by casting your burden upon Him. Second exhortation. Look at verse 8. And here's where we really get into this warfare terminology. Be of sober spirit. Be of sober spirit. And on the heels of it, a third term, be on the alert. Both of those strong military term. Strong military terms. And I love that third term there. It speaks of being a watchman. That's exactly what Thomas Brooks said. It says, Know Christ. That's the, Thomas Brooks. Know Christ. Know the Scripture. Know your own hearts. Know Satan's schemes. And he says, I must do that to be both a faithful Christian, but also to be a faithful watchman. I'm glad he said that. Because it speaks here of being a watchman. 
That's what it means to be on the alert. Literally, to be watching out. And by the way, these are commands, imperatives. Be of a sober spirit. It means that you are clear-headed. It means you're paying attention. Got your eyes open. It means you're spiritually awake. You are clear-headed. We've already studied that word in detail. Don't need to go into it. It means that you are ready, vigilant. You're, you're on the front lines. This idea of a watchman, you know, in that, in that time, in that time frame, the cities had those walls, those impenetrable walls around them. And they had people who were walking around those walls. Those were watchmen. And they had their gear on. And they had their, their weaponry. They knew what it was to watch. They were on the front lines. They were waiting for the first signs that something was amiss. They were the ones who were to signal when some kind of initial warning. They were watching for for enemy fire. They were watching for someone who was coming nearby that they didn't recognize. Why? Because they had buddies who were getting a little shut-eye in the back. And they were protecting the guys who were trying to get some sleep. They were keeping watch. And what were they watching out for? Some Iraqi soldier? No. Somebody who was far more cunning than that. What does verse 8 say? Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary the devil. You remember I told you, lurking behind the scenes, it's not just... Your adversary, some other believer. Your adversary, some other person in the world. Your adversary, the devil. Lurking behind the scenes is this being called the devil. You say, wait a minute. You can't see him. That's the point. That is the whole point. It's a being we cannot see. You say, how can I be a watchman on the wall with somebody I can't see? All the reason to be more vigilant. To be watching out for someone you cannot see. It would be like being a watchman on a ship. You can't see the person, but you can see the ripples in the water. You have to watch out for signs and seasons and ripples. He's there. He's been there from the garden. He'll be there at least until God is pleased to deal with him. And the reason we are to be sober, to be watchful, is because Peter says he is the adversary or the opponent. He's the opponent in our lives. The devil. He's the devil with a capital D. He's the slanderer. And by the way, only mentioned here in the Bible, he's the roaring lion. Why do you suppose he's called the roaring lion here? Well, I suppose because it speaks of his ferociousness. And as I was thinking about that this week and as I was preparing for the care group questions tonight, 
I thought to myself, here's the first thing that popped into my mind when I was preparing care group, care group questions, and I was thinking, how could I ask a question that would be very applicable, very practical? And here was the question I came up with. Who really believes in Satan anymore? I mean, really? I mean, I thought about this. I thought, what if an unbeliever was reading my prepared care group question? I mean, what if somebody in the world was reading a care group question? And so I wrote it this way. Who really believes in Satan anymore? Can anyone honestly say that there is a real devil who seeks to prowl around like a lion devouring people in order to destroy their lives and futures? I mean, I read that question myself as an unbeliever, and I thought, that is a joke. I mean, as an unbeliever, we're talking about a being in a universe that that we honestly as Christians believe there is a being out there somewhere who is wanting to attack other people who we can't see, but who wants to do harm to a certain number of people and who wants to destroy them because of their worship of another being that we also can't see? What? What are we thinking? And yet, we all are convinced that these beings are real? It's like fantasy. How can we live in such a fantasy world? And then I started thinking, but wait a minute. They believe in the paranormal. Just turn on coast to coast on your radio at night. Do we believe the Word of God? Do we believe that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? That's what it says. He is seeking someone to devour. And then I had this thought. I have experienced Satan's temptations, and so have you. I have seen his ravages. I have experienced his temptations. I have seen what he does in the lives of people. I've seen his work in the world. This is, this is real, not only based on experience, it's real based upon the Word of God. It's, it's real And it's real not only in my own experience, but it's real because God says it is true. He is ferocious. He is one who is all about thwarting the plan of God. He's he's real because He's all about warring with God. And even if I weren't alive, He'd be real. Even if there were no Christians, He'd be real because He'd still want to usurp the plan of God. He'd still want to un-God God if He were able to do so. In fact, uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is maybe a little lesson on Satan, Satanology. This is, this is an amazing thing. Based on our time, maybe, maybe we're not through with 1 Peter. 1 Corinthians 5. And this, this will really blow your theological gaskets. I told you that, you know, there's believers, and then there's Satan, and, and then there's God. I didn't even say anything about 
Satan's minions, his hosts, demons, and what they're doing all around. But here's another category. This is God using Satan and his host. Here's an example of the Apostle Paul using Satan for his own ends. 1 Corinthians 5. Here's a man who was having sexual relations with his father's wife, his stepmother, and Paul was dealing with it because the Corinthian church wasn't dealing with it. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Here's the Apostle Paul with apostolic authority saying, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan. My, oh my. Here's, here's Paul as an apostle saying, I'm going to give this one over to Satan to do whatever Satan is going to do. He's going to sort of give this one over to Satan for destruction, for destructive purposes. And then two chapters later, chapter 7, Satan also tempts tempts believers sexually if husband and wife don't come together regularly for sexual gratification. Chapter 7, verse 5, Stop depriving one another, which is the Bible's way of saying to husband and wife, you must regularly come together for sexual gratification. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. That's the only acceptable time that you will not come together for sexual gratification and come together again, that is sexually, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan is all about trying to do what he can to disrupt believers in their relationships to one another. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. You say, what will Satan do? Peter's not telling us, but other Bible passages will tell us quite well. Ephesians 4, 27. What is the adversary? What is the devil doing? How is he like a roaring lion? seeking whom he may devour. This is what Ephesians 4.27 says. And do not give the devil an opportunity. How will he be given an opportunity? When people are angry with one another, when believers are angry with one another, when they are allowing sin between them and they go to bed and they don't deal with their anger. It says in verse 26, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. When you... Do not resolve conflicts between each other as brethren, as believers. You allow the devil to be given an opportunity. You see? Chapter 6, verse 11 of Ephesians. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Conversely, if, if you do not arm yourself you will not be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Look at verse 16. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith, your trust in God, which, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. He will be casting his, his arrows against you continually, and you must, with the shield of faith, not allow him to penetrate your, your faith with his arrows. This is... This is Satan's schemes. 
1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 5, 2 Timothy 2.26. Revelation 12.10 says this, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, how often? Day and night. That's how often he is our adversary. He is our accuser. He is the one who comes against us. You see, folks, we're in a war. We are in a battle. And you know, for us, it may not be so much outward persecution, outward suffering. It may not be for us this kind of uh, persecution that we see with the persecuted church around the world, martyrdom. It may be for us so subtle. It may be angry Christians at one another, disputes, divisions. It may be ever so subtle, but ever so real. For them, it may be ever so clear with someone putting a gun to your head. We're going to see that in a moment. It may be for us ever so more subtle, but Satan is real. We'll pick that up more next time. We don't have time. We're going to have to do a part two on this, but... I just want to emphasize to you that when we get together, Satan will attempt to do everything, just as Peter says here, prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You say, well, what's, what's our tactics? How should we fight against him? What's, what's our strategy? Well, that's what verse 9 says. And we've run out of time. We'll have to pick it up 